This is the current federal tax developments for the week of September 11th, 2023. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state Society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers, and I'm coming to you again this week from Phoenix, Arizona. And this, we're going to be looking at a couple of things that we need to be thinking about. Uh, the first one, which would be our quick minor issue we'll go over, is talking about some last-minute changes the IRS made to the Schedule K-2 and K-3 Frequently Asked Questions for preparing those very last-minute 22 returns. And we'll talk about what they're dealing with and why probably you didn't miss anything if you finished your partnerships or S-Corporation returns prior to this particular piece of guidance coming out. And secondly, and this is the big thing for this week, the IRS finally apparently has decided that Congress is not going to repeal the Section 174 provisions, at least in time to file timely returns on extension for 2022 calendar year returns. So they did bring out uh, preliminary guidance. And again, this is one of those, okay, but we already filed everything type of issues. So this is apparently the IRS taking care of all these things that you needed to know before you did your September 15th deadline returns. But unfortunately, the IRS didn't get around to telling us until uh, pretty close to the deadline. But they did beat the deadline. We'll give them that for this week. Let's start out with this change to the FAQs for K2s and K3s. This is on the K2 and K3 Frequently Asked Questions page for Forms 11, 1065, 1120S, and 8865. And this is newly added question 30. Prior to this change made on September 5th, the questions went only to number 29. And this new question 30 was added to the FAQ, and it addresses the issue of negative entries being made in Part 2, Section 1 of the Schedules K2 and K3. And for those of you who don't have all the parts memorized, that Part 1 deals with the foreign tax credit, or I should say Part 2 does, and Section 1 deals with gross income items. And this is where we're having into, at least some people apparently are running into a problem here that they thought the IRS needed to correct. If you put negative entries in any box in that area, so you tried to enter it as a negative number, such entries were rejected when you tried to electronically file the return. Now, the interesting part is I hadn't heard anybody complaining about that. I've heard all kinds of odd complaints about Schedules K-2 and K-3 on the foreign tax credit issues, but this was not one I had really heard a groundswell of major number of people complaining about, but apparently some people were, right? Now, the interesting part is if you look at the entries there, it doesn't seem that anything there ever should have a negative entry. And that in fact, if there was something that you thought should be negative there, then presumably it probably was should be an expense that was directly related to whatever type of income you were talking about, but not really a, you know, a gross income number. Now, that said, I will say that gross income would make a difference. If you could reduce especially U.S. source gross income, that would make the foreign source gross income a larger percentage of taxable income, which would increase the amount of foreign tax credit you could claim if you were claiming a deduction. So I'm assuming that somebody wanted a negative number there in order to presumably reduce the amount of income, you know, that wasn't from 
whatever countries they were worried about, country, whatever. And obviously U.S. is the best because if you can get that one reduced, that never that doesn't have any foreign taxes to credit. So it should work just fine, would be the catch. But I will note, as we show you on the slide here, um, the IRS has not conceded in this particular thing they released. While they're going to give us instructions on how to deal with that situation, assuming you have it and you believe it is correct, they do make it very clear they're not conceding that this is the proper reporting or this reporting is allowed or that it would be legal to consider a negative number in computing gross income for purposes of the foreign tax credit. And the actual question you're going to see on the website uh, essentially says for the 2022 tax year, a passive entity receives information, for instance, a Schedule K-3 from a lower tier passive entity, that certain gross income amounts reported on Schedules K-2 and K-3 are negative. However, the current schema for electronic filings of Schedules K-2 and K-3 does not permit negative values for certain light items in Part 2, Section 1 of Schedules K-2 and K-3. How should these negative numbers be reported on Schedule K-2 and K-3 of the IRS and to the partners or members? Now, it's interesting that it's phrased assuming that you have received a K-2 from a partnership, which seems like as a pass-through entity, but honestly, as a pass-through entity, you know, basically your S-corporation couldn't own an S-corporation uh, and have it pass through. You know, that that's, would only work in the standpoint of a qualified S-corporation subsidiary, which would be a 100% owned sub that you would just report on your return like normal. You wouldn't get a K-2 from them. And obviously a partnership, if it owns shares in a corporation that previously was an S-corp, it will become not an S-corp as soon as it has that partnership owner. So presumably we're talking about a partnership here. And I have to assume that there are some partnerships out there that perhaps insisted on having a negative entry in that block. And apparently I would assume those partnerships that did that and that may have issued K2s and K3s to various partners that were negative, that those partnerships, you know, either paper filed the return itself or treated the K2 and K3 somehow as an attachment to the regular partnership return and, you know, filed that way, but didn't use their own because otherwise it seems like they would have had the same problem, but apparently they didn't. So somehow we have this negative one. And what's happening now is people, you know, partnerships that got this K2 or K3 from another partnership that has this negative number in the K2 and K3 block is unable to complete their return, at least electronically filing. So the IRS answer is a password entity electronically filing schedules K2 and K3 for 2022 tax year should enter zero on the line items in K2 and K3 part two, section one, for which the schema does not permit negative values. A password entity must attach a general dependency XML schema to the schedule K2, identifying the line items and negative values with the pass to entity reported zero on part two, section one. And additionally, a password entity should attach a list of the impacted line items and the negative numbers partner by partner. A password entity should report to its partners or members any changes to the amounts reported on the original K3 to issued to the partners or members. And finally, the key statement, the IRS has not opined on whether it is legally appropriate to use negative values. So in any event, I think they've got this question. I would have to assume there are some large partnerships that did this, that are creating issues with other partnerships. 
So they, they gave this last second fix to allow those other partnerships to go ahead and file their returns. And then we'll probably take care of it in future. They may very, don't be surprised if you see the instructions for K2 and K3 next year tell you explicitly you can't put a negative number on those lines. But it was interesting and, uh, you know, it's not quite clear why in the world people are doing this. And that, that's been something uh, you may have, you know, if you got tax notes, you may have seen that I got quoted as well as an attorney got quoted regarding, you know, what was the purpose of this? And I think both of us came to the conclusion that we're not really clear why it would be there or whether it's there. Uh, but apparently somebody's trying to argue that there may be a legal issue underlying it somewhere. But in any event, you, you know, uh, you know, the attorney, I think it was Monty Jackal was the attorney involved with this. And I, we really couldn't come up with a scenario. You know, we were each asked separately. And neither one of us had a scenario we could give as an example of when this would happen. When would you want to put a negative number in that block when it would be appropriate? So it's interesting. And like I said, don't be surprised if it's dealt with next time, uh, or I should say in the instructions for the 2023 K2 and K3. But obviously at this late date, you know, they've just decided, well, we're going to let these people file this thing and we'll deal with it later. Because as it stands right now, you're either going to tell them all to paper file it or you're going to end up stuck with this particular issue. So probably you're going to decide, hey, we're not going to paper file this. We're just going to go ahead and kind of leave it alone for now. So for right now, not really an issue. We'll see if it becomes an issue uh, later. But right now, not really a problem, not an issue that we have. So we'll just move forward from here. Next up is the actual big issue for this week. And this involves the uh, IRS finally issued interim guidance on the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act changes to Internal Revenue Code Section 174 that took effect for 2022 tax years. This is notice 2023-63. This was issued on September the 8th. And interestingly enough, it was issued basically midday, well, midday for me in Phoenix, afternoon for those on the East Coast, which is kind of in line with how a lot of these things get issued. Uh, my theory always is that, you know, whoever's in charge of it, they make sure that it comes out just as they're leaving. So they don't have time to get any questions about the issue, right? They're going to be gone until Monday. They know all the stories we written over the weekend and they don't have to do any other commentary about what was done here. This is a 46 page document, right? And what it deals with was if you've forgotten Internal Revenue Code Section 174 was changed in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act in 2017 to require amortization of both research and experimental expenditures, what 174 previously dealt with and allowed immediate expensing of, and as well, software development costs. And these are software development costs that otherwise would not be research experimental. If the software development costs would have been research experimental costs anyway, then they were already captured by 174. But they're saying, even if they're not, we're going to force them to be picked up under this method. Now, when you, this applies, you amortize these capitalized costs over five years for domestic expenditures and over 15 years for a foreign expenditure. Okay, so depending upon whether the research activity is conducted in the U.S. or outside the U.S., it's either a five-year or a 15-year amortization. 
we do that with a basically midpoint assumption for when it's placed in service in the year in which expenses are incurred. So there'll be a half year the first year, half year the last year, and then full years in between. And it was effective for tax years beginning after December 31st, 2021. So it took effect in 2022. Now, as you may remember, I remember lecturing on the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act right after it came out. I remember specifically dealing with this section. And I remember specifically thinking that the people in the room looked like they were, you know, this is when you go check your phone to see what messages you got, right? I mean, in essence, you, you could kind of see that most everybody tuned this out because at that point it was like five years in the future. And most of them assumed it would never really come to pass. So everybody just kind of ignored it. And that's because, to be honest, the people in the room had the same expectation that everybody else who in this area had, you know, who had been commenting, writing, etc., they, they all had the same expectation that it would never actually take effect. It was, to be blunt, expected to be a budget gimmick very similar to the Cadillac tax we saw in the Affordable Care Act. And by what I mean by that is, remember, there are various complex rules that involve what you can do in a reconciliation bill, one of which is you cannot commit to spend money, net spend money, outside the 10-year budget window. So if you want to have anything that's made permanent by your budget bill that can pass the Senate, but they get to a vote on the Senate floor with only 50, you know, with basically with a majority vote, not 60, the over know, the extra majority, um, then you have to meet that criteria. Secondly, as people have become more concerned about budget deficits, and this was true even in 2017, you know, there were, as I recall, Senator Corker of Tennessee uh, was very insistent that he would not be a vote in favor of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act unless it costs, it was scored as costing less than $2.1 trillion over its life. And obviously, you know, given the fact there would be no Democrat votes for that bill, and we were having trouble rounding up the Republicans because there were other senators who had other drop-dead things, either put this in there or I'm not voting for the bill, uh, various things that came in that got us things like the, uh, the, the special phase-in rules for the qualified business income deduction. Uh, that, that was reportedly a senator who was upset that, you know, his, his single, you know, his, his small family farmers who had no employees, would not get any QBI deduction, and so he wasn't going to vote for the bill without that. There were, I mean, there were a whole series of things. There were others that you know, insisted on some sort of child tax credit to go with the system. So this was one of various ways we got it done. Now, like the Cadillac tax, the effective date was delayed. If you remember the Cadillac tax in the Affordable Care Act, it was pushed forward, I think, just like this one, five years. So the Cadillac tax, if you've forgotten it, was a special excise tax that would apply if you had a too generous, right, too generous slash too expensive medical care program that was either going to be, you know, that was basically, that was going to be an extra cost on top, with the idea being to make these programs totally unacceptable, you know, from a pricing standpoint, and to eliminate them. And one of the reasons that it was done of course, theoretically, it was done to get rid of these high-cost policies that may have been driving up medical costs. But obviously, if you can delay it five years, that wasn't that crucial. 
for that purpose. The big thing was it was scored as raising money, which again, helped the bill get past some objections for, you know, it's too expensive or get past the objections that it spent money outside the 10-year window. Now, in both cases, what happens with these things is that the part, you know, various people, you know, who's trying to get the votes, it's not as if the, uh, I believe we had 53 Republican votes in favor of it in 2017, the Senate. It's not as if those 53 plus the members of the House that passed this bill eventually as well. It's not as if all of them were like, oh, yeah, this is what we want to do. We want to get rid of expensing research and, you know, for research and experimental expenditures. In fact, I doubt there's a single one that was in favor of it. So why would you vote for a bill with something that had a provision that you absolutely thought was the dumbest thing you'd ever seen? Well, because you knew the members of the other party who were not going to vote for this bill also thought it was the dumbest thing they'd ever seen. And they were very, very much against um, you know, this bill, and they wanted to see it repealed as well. Well, then things got complicated. As we came up on the deadline, you may remember the theory would be you would repeal this thing in 2021. And, you know, we take the hit, we pass on a bill, you know, preferably pass on a bill that would get more than 60 votes in the Senate. So everybody would sign off and we just ignore that cost. We'd suddenly, you know, absorb that cost on a standalone basis and wouldn't worry about the fact that we just kind of undid the only reason why TCGA could have been with a reconciliation bill, just like we did with the Affordable Care Act. But, you know, we, we ignored that, that little problem. But the problem that came up at that point was, in 2021, the Democrats were in control. But again, they actually proposed a bill. Now, the problem was we could not float a bill by, because nobody was cooperating, of course, that could just make it a straight up and down vote on doing this or not doing it, you know, just passing it or not passing it, uh, and just a standalone provision. So the Democrats ended up being pushed to put it into the reconciliation bill. And that was part of, you know, that, that also was kind of a strategic move on the part of the Republicans makes sense, you know, by forcing the Democrats to use this, right, to use the reconciliation bill to include this, you limited what they could do in theory uh, on, you know, certain other spending programs. Because again, it has to still, anything that would go outside the 10-year window, you know, suddenly we have to offset for that. So we have things that we, that we can't use our, whatever revenue raisers we have that would go outside the 10-year window uh, to, you know, allow another program the Democrats might've liked to have in there. But number two, it also, because they knew that there were a couple of Democratic senators who were also like Senator Corker, very, very concerned about the cost of the package, you know, we're going to insist it stay under a certain level. So the thought was, well, you know, they're going to have this thing in here. And between the fact that they have to use reconciliation and the fact they can't get Democrat votes unless they bring the cost down, we're going to basically get rid of a lot of the programs we don't want. But the good news was for them, it, it did work to do that because the Democrats basically took what was the Build Back Better Act and reduced it dramatically to get the Inflation Reduction Act of 2021. So pared it back rather dramatically in terms of the spending levels in the program, in the bill, the net spending levels over the 10-year budget window. However, it turns out that they decided that, you know, 
everybody was okay with, okay, well, we'll just leave this alone because we know the Republicans really want this thing out of there. And I guess, and the other theory, to be totally honest, is, and they're the only ones that voted for it anyway, which, you know, when you're in politics, you think that way. So what ends up happening is that it got left out of that bill. We get to the end of 22, then still have this fixed. And remember, 22 is year it takes effect. And at the end of that year, they're again working on getting it out. But now again, the parties can't agree on what to do, you know, you know, and again, we don't get a clean bill. Uh, in this point, the Democrats were insisting it be tied to an extension of the child tax credit, which the Republicans had refused to vote to extend. So it's like, well, we want this, you, you know, we want this thing, the child tax credit extended, you know, if, if, if you want us to fix your problem, and that's kind of how they viewed it, because you're the ones who created the problem, then you need to give us something. Well, so far, they still haven't basically come up with an idea about how to do that. And we still have the same problem right now. So bottom line, the unthinkable happened, repeal never took place, and the law now has gone into effect. And while, the, while Congress could still retroactively repeal this thing, uh, we have to file returns now, we have to pay tax. These things are happening and it's not going to be fixed before I realize on the 15th of September, that's mainly pass-throughs, so the tax isn't being paid right at that time. But this is highly unlikely to be fixed by October 15th either when entities, when basically individuals and C-Corps will actually pay this tax. So that's something we're wanting into. Now let's talk about the actual bill. And when I talk about the actual bill, there is some, you know, there is basically some things you want to look at here. Uh, first, let's talk about the scope of the bill, right? And we do have uh, basically an article on the Kernel Tax Development's website that goes through this entirely. And I strongly suggest you spend some time in there because there's a lot of stuff that we're going to cover a lot here today. Um, I do want to warn you that, yeah, it'll be a lot better, especially if you're working on this, to go back and work through it there. Now, in the, in the initial part, talk about the scope of the guidance, make it very clear that it doesn't apply to any research or experimental expenditures incurred prior to January 1st of 2022. And there's a couple reasons for that. Uh, basically, any additional guidance we have in here about what is a research expenditure, in theory, doesn't apply prior to this date. And why that is important, we'll get to, but basically one big problem is the Section 174 expenses. Um, the problem is for the credit for increasing research activities under Section 41, one of the requirements you have to have something be considered a research expenditure, or you know, qualified research expenditure, and I mean, it's only one level, but it's one part of it, is it must be a 174 specified research expenditure. That means that everything that you've, you know, your client or your company may have used as 174 or as qualifying you for the research credit under the same basic theories would work to force you to capitalize that stuff when incurred in 22. Okay, so that's why it's there. But they're also saying you can't go back into 22 and use this notice, let's say, or into 21, and use this notice to increase the amount of your research credit. So that's basically part of what they're saying, at least indirectly, in this realm. Okay, so as I say, but they do make it clear that going forward for certain, 
this is expected to apply for the 41 research credit. So in essence, to make it clear that there is an equivalency here, right? We're going to do the 174 test is a 174 test and your research expenditures for section 41 credit purposes do have to be 174 expenses, right? Now, as I said, there are other, there are other qualifications added there. So it's not that every 174 expense is going to qualify as a 41 expense, but everything that qualified for 41 is going to be in this capital, the capitalization category. I'm going to make that clear, right? So what we're going to have, let's talk about some of the key provisions that were in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act itself that are discussed here in the scope section. Section 13206A of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act says, these things must be amortized over five or 15 years. And you cannot write these things off due to dispositions. It also added software development as a category that would be considered part of 174 costs, so it ended up getting be amortized. Section 13206B of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, uh, you, this will be considered a change of accounting method, but with a cutoff treatment. Now, what that means is you don't have to go back and capitalize the research, basically the research experimental expenditures that you had incurred prior to the beginning of 22, prior to the beginning of your first tax year in 22. But rather anything incurred from that point forward has to be treated as a, you know, basically has to be treated as capitalized under the cutoff basis. So that's going to be the issue. They also noted that they had previously issued Revenue Procedure 2023-11, which actually modified an earlier revenue procedure that provides automatic consent, that you can get automatic consent for this change. It is a statement you attach to the return for 22. And if you've been doing this, you should have been aware of that. And that's there to give you permission. And again, we go back to the absurdity that you must do this, but you still have to officially ask for the IRS permission to stop doing it the way the law the way the law had you do it before this year and start doing it this way, even though this way wouldn't have been allowed for years before this year, right? You could still amortize, but not over this five, 15 year period, right? If you wanted to. Now, there are a number of provisions dealing specifically with capitalization and amortization of what are considered SRE, you know, basically specified research and experimental is what SRE stands for. And we have this thing called SRE expenditures, right? The first one looks at what is foreign research. And the term foreign research is any research conducted outside the United States, the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico, or any territory or other possession of the United States. And in order, whether something's foreign or not, depends upon where the activities are performed. So for instance, if you hire a contractor, we get to contract ones later, but if you had a contractor and what you're paying that contractor to do some research work for you is going to be considered to be an SRE expenditure on your end. Um, the fact that let's say that research is being done in Mexico, that'll make it foreign. However, if a Mexican company that let's say has U.S. operations, if it contracts with a U.S. entity to perform the research, then the fact that the company, let's say, is based in Mexico and, you know, that's where management is, that that's where the main offices are. Maybe it's even where the manufacturing facilities are. 
but they have their research conducted inside the U.S., that's going to be considered to be a, you know, basically a five-year amortization. That'll be how we look at that. Okay. Now, we also have a definition of what is the midpoint. Now, generally, the midpoint is for a 12-month year, it's going to be the first day of the seventh month of the tax year will be your midpoint. And that's important because that, that means you're going to get six months of amortization. Now, if you have a short year, there, is, there are different rules for odd number or even numbers of months. Okay. So basically, for an even numbered year, if you like that, let's say there are six months in your year, just like we did for 12, we're going to go to, you know, half of it is three. So the first, the first three months don't count but the beginning of month four counts. So that, that's how we're going to make it work. If you have an odd number of months, let's say that we had seven months, then we would go for the first, we would take the month, the month is going to be considered a midpoint month is the month that is basically that has as many months before and after that month. So again, in this case, we would be looking at that midpoint month as the fourth month in this case, because it'd be three months before it and three months after it. So basically, that's how you do it. There are some other special rules for short years you probably want to take a look at. If you have a new company or they change their years, uh, you want to take a look at those special rules when you need it. Now, there are some definitions for terms that are used in Section 174, right? A specified research expenditure is essentially research or experimental expenditures as we define them, right? generally under old 174 and the rest of this a notice, which are paid or incurred by the taxpayer during this taxable year in connection with the taxpayer's trade or business. And research or expendable expenditures are either ones that satisfy the requirements under old regulation 1.174-2 to be research or expendable expenditures or are paid, incurred, are paid or incurred in connection with development of any computer software regardless of whether or not such expenditures are research or experimental expenditures, right? Those are the keys, what we end up doing there. Now, what that old reg provides, we've been around far, it provides that research and experimental include all such costs incident to the development or improvement of a product. So we're gonna see that development and improvement or improvement test as being when we have research costs, right? And generally we're gonna be looking at resolving and uncertainty, right? They represent uh, research and developmental costs, experimental laboratory sense. If there are activities for, there are four activities that would discover information that would eliminate uncertainty related to development or improvement of the product. There is a specific uncertainty we are trying to resolve. We are expending funds to resolve that uncertainty, and that's going to make it into research and experimental expenditures. That's your basic background definition. As you may expect, it's helpful to understand what the company really does and how they really operate and what they're really doing at a detailed level to come up with that number. Okay. Now we have this, now we go on to SRE activities. Remember SRE stands for specified research and research and experimental activities. So an SRE activity includes software development activities or research or experimental expenditures. Those are your key. Now they then provide in a section entitled, essentially, identification or allocation of SRE expenditures, 
They provide in there a non-exhaustive list of costs that may be SRE costs. Those costs that may be, and again, not everything you do is going to be that, but you're going to figure out how much of these costs are properly allocable to resolving this uncertainty. And that could be labor costs, right? Uh, and that's all elements of compensation, including fringe benefits and the like are in that issues, holiday pay, sick leave, payroll taxes, pension costs, all of those things would count. Uh, materials and supply costs, which are used or consumed for service of the activity or direct support, right? So that could be there. Uh, cost recovery allowance was depreciation, amortization, or depletion. With respect to property used performance of these activities or in direct support of these activities uh, would also could be considered as to be allocated as a research and development cost. The cost of obtaining a patent, attorney's fees, and other uh, expended in making and perfecting a patent application. Uh, certain operation and management costs, rents, utilities, insurance, taxes, repairs, and maintenance costs, repairs, and maintenance costs, you say, security costs, and similar overhead costs with respect to facilities, equipment, and other assets used in performance of SRE activities or in direct support of those activities. And finally, uh, travel costs, right? Travel for performance of the activities or direct support of those activities would also be things we need to allocate to the SRE. Now, in addition to that, we have a list of costs that are not SRE. And that includes, among other things, again, not a, a list of costs paid or incurred by ge general administrative service departments that only indirectly support or benefit SRE activities. For example, payroll processing, preparing the salary check of those people, human resources personnel that hire these research personnel and accounting personnel who account for these expenditures. Those will not be part of SRE. Interest or debt to finance SRE activities is not part of SRE. Costs paid or incurred for activities described in uh, that are not treated as software development. We'll talk about that in that issue. Uh, cost to input content into a website. That's kind of interesting, but okay. Um, cost for website hosting that involve the payment of a specified periodic fee to a net service provider in return for hosting a website on servers connected to the internet. That can never be part of this. Uh, the cost to register an internet domain name or trademark. Amounts representing amortization of SRE expenditures from other years. And it makes sense. Otherwise, they're just going to end this loop. An amount representing amortization of research experimental expenditures that were from years prior. Well, that also makes sense. And finally, the list of costs that we find in Section 174, uh, or Reg 1.174-2-A6, uh, that essentially tells us that the following are never considered to be SREs. Ordinary testing or inspection of materials or products for quality control, efficiency surveys, management studies, consumer surveys, advertising or promotion, acquisition of somebody, uh, somebody else's patent model production or process, or research in connection with literary, historical, or similar projects. Those are all excluded. Now, of course, we, we know that back prior to this law, that was those were all considered bad things if you're trying to get the credit under Section 41. Now that's kind of a different take. We look at it this way as to how it ends up working. Now the law also says you must have a reasonable allocation of costs. They recognize that no, not every labor cost you expend is going to re, is going to basically be involved with research activities. 
fact, probably a relatively small portion, right? We're going to assume that, you know, you're going to spend most of your labor is going to be spent on making the current product, right? Making the products we're selling, not research, not, not amounts going into researching to develop or improve a future product, right? Unless you are literally in your startup phase, you have nothing shippable yet. You're probably not spending all your money on research style projects for your labor. That wouldn't work very well for you. So basically, we're going to go with things like that as to how it would end up running. So you're going to allocate. Now, they do say that you could use different methods for different uh, types of expenses. And in fact, they have a really long, comprehensive example. I strongly suggest you get the uh, actual you know, notice. And you're going to set up your allocation tables. Take a look. Because there, there they have a whole ton of different types of expenses. And some are allocated by square footage devoted. Some are allocated based on hours. They're allocated based on various different things. And you're allowed to use any sort of reasonable method to allocate. But one key issue is they must be consistent, right? You must consistently treat and allocate in the same manner these costs. Well, let's say you, know, you don't have to do every one by the same method. You do have to be consistent from year to year if you're using square footage to allocate costs of a building that houses some of the research activities. Then you need to keep using square footage going forward. That's going to be the requirement. And you have to continue to treat that building as long as it houses the research people, you know, as having a portion related to research. That's going to be a consistency there. We also have a definition now of what is software development expenditures. Remember, they were added to this. And we end up with some defined terms, such as computer software. Not surprisingly, it is what you expect it to be, right? As well as what's an upgrade or enhancement to the software, right? And that's probably the more important is it's a modification to existing software, right? Uh, that results in added functionality, right? Or materially increase the speed or efficiency of the software. Now, as we'll discover, straight up maintenance of software, you know, basically swatting bugs, that's not considered to be research, or I should say software development costs, not research, because it's not research, it's software development costs. And by the way, these are not going to qualify for the credit under Section 41 unless you could show they separately qualified as research experimental costs under the old 174 style rules. So that, that's going to be a little quirk there that we get into as to how you can make that work. Now, certain activities are listed as being treated as software development. That includes planning the development of computer software or the upgrades or enhancements of software, including identification and documentation of requirements has to go in this category, designing the computer software or the upgrades to such software, building a model of the software or the upgrades or enhancements to such software, writing the source code and converting it to machine-readable code, compiling. That's all that fun stuff. Uh, testing the software, or the upgrades, and making necessary modifications to address defects identified during testing, but only up until the time that, in the case of software developed for use by a taxpayer in its trade or business, the software is placed in service, and in the case of software developed for sale or licensing to others, technological feasibility has been established, product masters have been produced, and the software is ready for sale or licensing. In essence, we're at gold master time, right? And we've actually done, we've actually made it, and we've decided that is the one we're doing. We've created the gold master. Now we know we're probably going to update and change that software. We may do so very quickly. But at that point, we've gone to gold master. That ends the development process. 
right? That, that ends where testing is going to be capitalized, right? That'll be there. Okay, and the case computer software developed for sale or license to others, right? The actual production of product masters is part of what you have to capitalize. Now, if you purchase software, there are some special rules. Let's say you have purchased software. Uh, generally, uh, just purchasing and installing software, right, is not going to be considered one of these things. Purchase installation of a software, that's not development. So let's say you go out and you purchase Microsoft Excel. And you, you know, therefore you bought Microsoft Excel and you then install it on your local computer. Or maybe all the computers, you license it for all the computers in your network. So you license it for all the computers in the building. That's not going to be considered research and development. However, if you actually upgrade or enhance the software, you know, in this case, and you do it on site and you're expending money to do that, to upgrade or enhance the software, that will be considered to be software development expenditures. So anything you do in that, maybe you develop your own add-ons for Excel, you know, do other projects like that. Those will tend to be software development projects that you're going to have to capitalize and use expenditures for, right? So that, that's going to be an issue. Now, there are certain activities not treated as software development. Uh, there are a limited number of items related to software developed for the comp company's own trade or business. And th this sounds good initially. A lot of people jumped on this and said, see, activities not treated as software development. They see companies, they see computer software developed by a tax for use as trade or business. And they thought that excluded everything. No, that just introduced you to the categories. In the case, computer software is developed by used by a taxpayer in its trade or business or upgrades and enhancements to such software. You can exclude from software development costs, training employees, other stakeholders that will use the software. You can exclude maintenance activities after the software is placed in service. That's probably key. You have to be using it that do not give rise to upgrades or enhancement. So corrective maintenance to debug, diagnose, and fix programming errors. Yeah, you're swatting bugs. That, that you don't have to worry about. Data conversion activities, except for activities to develop computer software that facilitate access to existing data or data conversion. So if you're developing data conversion software per se, then yeah, that's software development activities. If you're merely you know, developing something to allow you to, you know, we're using our package here and we've got this thing developed, but now, now we want to go ahead and let's say be able to import data from a client's package that's a little bit odd and we develop that import routine. Yeah, that, that, that's not going to really be, you know, convert that, that conversion activity will not be a problem doing the conversion work to just get their data in our form. And then installing computer software and other activities, those will not be considered part of it. You know, so training, maintenance, uh, we also talked about their um, data conversion, and we talked about the fact installing. Those are all there. How about software available to uh, for others? Uh, any expenses incurred after the software is ready for use, you know, by the other parties other than upgrades and enhancements, which we then do separately. Uh, marketing and promotional activities for the software that we plan to have others use, that's also not considered part of the deal. Maintenance activities do not give rise to upgrades and enhancements are not part of the deal, right? Or can be excluded from software development costs. Distribution activities, that is making the software available via remote access and customer support activities. 
All of those can be properly excluded. We don't need to worry about those, right? We, we can do whatever we, you know, we don't have to treat those and amortize those over the life. We're allowed to essentially pretty much, you know, do, do whatever we would like or do, may not what we like, but, you know, essentially go ahead and uh, just, you know, start treating those as you, as just standard expensed items, right? Don't worry about that. Not really a problem, right? That'll be key. Let's go to research under contract now, right? That, that's the next category of things. Let's talk about research that performed under contracts. Well, this is something we've seen in section 41, and we're going to have very similar re results here, but we're there. A research provider performs research activities for the research recipients with respect to an SRE product. So there is a product they're developing that has specified research expenditures, specified research experimental expenditures devoted for. We're now developing that with respect to a product. Or we're considered a research provider if we develop an SRE product that they acquire from the research provider. Right? That, that'll be one of those things that the research recipient will acquire from you, the provider. You're a research recipient if you contract the research provider perform research services for the research recipient with respect to an SRE product or develop the SRE product from the research recipient that the research recipient acquires from the research provider. So you take over, do either one of those. Then you, if you contract for somebody to do those, you are considered a research recipient. The key question is, what about the costs either one of those incurs for the research recipient, the costs they incur to contract to pay on the contract, and for a research provider, the costs they incur doing the work, who is going to end up capitalizing? And under what scenario do they end up capitalizing? That's going to be one of our key things. Now, one big issue we have here is financial risk. And that's the risk the research provider may suffer a financial loss related to the failure of the research to produce the desired result. And as we'll discover, uh, if you have financial risk and you're a research provider, then you are going to end up having to capitalize things because it turns out to effectively be, at least in many cases, your research is what you're doing. The SRE product means any pilot, model, process, formula, invention, technique, patent, computer software, or similar property that's subject to protection under applicable domestic or foreign law. Just gaining broad know-how that's not protectable is not considered to be a research activity in this context, right? Now, what about costs incurred by the research recipient? Their costs incurred. We're going to govern those by existing regulations 1.1742-A10 and B3, right, in that background. And quite often you're going to find they generally can be covered by that, some exceptions. But if you acquire a product subject to depreciation that is subject to specific requirements for payment is made, then it's not a research thing. In essence, I'm just saying, I need a piece of equipment, let's say a piece of machinery that will be able to stamp out X numbers of this product, you know, at a rate of at least 20,000 an hour, you know, then basically if I contract for that deliverable with that contingency on it, then I just, I'm buying that equipment, you know, will you deliver me the equipment that meets those specs? I'm fine. Now it may very well be now my research provider, is going to have to do work, right? They're going to have to solve a lot of problems to get that thing to work. But it means that I don't pay anything if it doesn't work and I'm going to be paying 
for the equipment if it does. So that will not be considered to be my research. It has to be capitalized and put under my contract. For the research provider, if you bear financial risk, then what you do is considered incident to your specified research activities for the year in question for your company. It's supplemental to those type of activities. If there's no financial risk, if you retain rights to the SRE product, then again, we're going to have these incident to SRE activities. So even if you're going to be paid, even if it fails, but you have the rights to continue to use that product, right? You can use it. You can use it for other purposes. If you continue to have the rights for that product, then it's still going to be SRE activities in your case. The presumption is you're doing this because, you know, you, you, you know, part of the reason you accepted probably a lower contract price was because you decided that it had some use for you in the future. That's why you basically negotiated for the right to continue to use that product once you've developed it. Now, how about disposition, retirement, or abandonment of property? The law basically says you cannot say the property is useless, write it off, and then write off all your research. And that's true even if you sell it, you give up your rights, you do whatever you want, that five-year amortization or 15-year amortization is going to continue. Right? We can't get out of it by trying to say it's a 165 loss. Right? We're going to amortize those costs. It's kind of like it's a cost recovery time period. It's not considered to be something that's related to a specific asset. But there is an exception. If a corporation ceases to exist, then the test gets a little more complicated. In that scenario, if the transaction is covered by Section 381A, and that covers corporate reorganization-style transactions where the basically the successor corporation keeps all tax attributes alive, like NOLs survive, uh, various other tax attributes just continue on with the new company. If that's the case, then you continue to amortize. And just if there were 10 years left when we did this merger, uh, we just continue to amortize the rest of 10 years in the new company. We don't care, you know, about the fact that the old corporation has ceased to exist. We just carry over what they've got. If the transaction does not covered by 381A, so we don't get carryover of NOLs and other things, then generally you can write it off. So this would be normally like a straight up, the company went under, right? It's its final year. We liquidated it. You could write off the unamortized balance. However, there is an anti-abuse rule. If your principal purpose for basically making the corporation go away, doing the transaction, was to get the write-off of the expenses, and I can see this in an S-corp context to some extent, um, maybe in certain others, but I get an ordinary deduction and then potentially get capital gain, one of those things, or reduce capital losses, um, you might want to trigger it. That's where I'd see the biggest problem is in an S-corp style situation. Again, in a C-corp situation, yeah, but if we're really liquidating, then it's not really probably a major problem. Uh, the catch is if it appears you're liquidating and then just simply reforming, you know, in a different form, that's one that may very well get tripped up by this uh, requirement. If there's no other reasonable, there's no other business explanation. And that's the way I kind of look at it is this transaction absolutely would not have occurred except for they were going to get this write-off. So that would be the problem there. Additional special rules. 
Uh, it turns out for long-term construction contracts under the percentage completion method, generally the 174 items were considered part of the cost of the contract. Well, that was great back in the days when we generally could just write those costs off over, you know, basically as they were incurred. And generally that's what we did. But now that we're going to have to capitalize them and amortize them over five years, if they really were still treated as a contract cost in that form, then you would have to effectively wait out the five years, right? And the catch would be, and this is what the artist wouldn't like, is that would also effectively, you know, defer recognition of income for the five or 15 years, which case then you might see some contractors want to go out and establish, you know, yeah, try to identify certain costs. Because again, remember with the way PCM works, there's a weird perverse incentive, uh, you know, the IRS wants to see costs recognized because if the costs are recognized, then the income comes in. Assuming you have a gross profit, that would increase what's taxable. You might prefer for all of your costs to be research costs. And therefore, no matter how you get paid, no matter how you do the work, no matter the fact this whole building has been done, if all the costs are 174 costs, then you would basically recognize the income over 15 years rateably, 10 years rateably, you know, I guess, especially if somehow the research costs could be all considered foreign, which seems difficult. Uh, I think it'd be a little tough to get them all. But certainly, you know, you, you could get a good chunk of costs that you might try to do research. That's the IRS. I'm going to do that. Rather, you're going to consider just the uh, amortization over the period, apparently, that you expect to uh, complete the contract. So whatever that amortized period, during the period you're doing, only those amortization costs will come under 174A. And we are going to modify cost-sharing arrangements under 1.42-7. We're generally going to change those cost-sharing, the 482 rules, uh, to require costs in these cases for 174 expenses to be allocated in accordance with the expected benefits. So we, we don't just send the, uh, the research costs to the non-profitable company, right, and leave them, you know, basically kind of, you know, route them in various ways to try to get an advantage by doing various other structures. Uh, the dates these rules will apply, generally the regulations when published are expected to apply to years beginning after September 8th of 2023. September 8th is when we publish this notice. You generally can rely on these rules except for the rules in section seven of the notice for SRE expenditures paid or incurred with respect to properties that is contributed to, distributed from, or transferred from a partnership. That gets into, the partnership rules get messy and what it tells me right now is that we're just gonna kind of wait and deal, deal with that later is how the IRS will approach it. Um, now, what about the change of accounting method? Because remember, the IRS allowed us to change to a reasonable method previously. Now we have this specific method. And the other problem is we have taxpayers who've already filed the return using methods that almost aren't exactly what's in this notice. You know, but they used a reasonable method, but not what's in this notice. So how, how are we gonna make this work? You know, how, how's all this gonna happen? You know, how are we going to handle these change of methods? Well, they didn't produce a new guidance yet, but they expect to issue that guidance, which will tell you how to do this versus the others. But they did say in the interim, right, while you're doing 22 returns, at least for now, you can just go ahead and use the uh, prior rev proc to make your changes in line with this if you're going to use this on your 22 return. And again, you don't have a whole lot of time, but I guess if, if you can, you, you would love to go ahead, you know, you could go ahead and get your, 
your 22 return in line with this guidance, or at least claim it was there. Um, and obviously, if you have a fiscal year 22 taxpayer, then you have more time and you would probably try to bring in with this guidance. Makes it simpler, no future changes. Now, does this mean we're done with 174 and it's just going to be in the code forever? Um, I'll phrase this way. Congress very well could still retroactively repeal this provision. They could say, well, okay, 22 is a done deal, but 23 and later we'll go back to the old rules. That's also a possibility. In essence, they could do anything. Now, my own take is the longer we go with this in the law, the longer we go with the world not ending, you know, presuming we don't trigger a big financial crisis from this and, you know, have everything fall apart, the higher the chance this just gets left in. It becomes baked in permanent and nobody wants to give up, right? In essence, give up, have to go find a revenue raise to offset it or have to give up whatever program otherwise they could get through with spending that money. So I think we're at risk. Just be aware of that, the fact it's gone on so long and the fact actual returns will be filed and we will see what happens. You know, what exactly does this do? What are the consequences? And also, when we're talking about we're supposed to get proposed regulations, please remember that the promised proposed regulations for the past entity tax that were told in, in November of 2020, in those 2020-75, so nearly three years ago, we've still not seen anything on them. So I wouldn't sit around and say the proposed regs are coming out next week. My guess is the IRS still believes Congress is going to you know, eventually repeal this or change it or modify it. So they're probably going to be in no rush to put out proposed regulations. They're just going to sit there and wait and watch things. So as I say, keep your eye on this. We'll see how it goes. This has been the Current Federal Tax Developments for the week of September the 11th, 2023. As always, Current Federal Tax Developments are brought to you by Capital Financial Education and your state side of CPAs. If you have questions, you can email me at zollers at currentfederaltaxdevelopments.com. You can also follow me on the Connect sites for Arizona Society of CPAs, New Jersey Society of CPAs, um, Illinois Society, Minnesota, watch a little bit on Washington, and on Idaho on their discussion forum that's not part of Connect. But in any event, it's the same sort of background, so I do watch there. Otherwise, we will see you back here in a week. Having gotten through your filings for your S corporations and partnerships, you'll be into, oh, now I got to worry about the trust mode, right? To get those last minute trusts out the door and then get ready for the last minute individuals and C corps because everything's coming due at once. It's that wonderful time of the year. So we will look forward to seeing you here a week from now and talking to you about whatever goes on in the area of current federal tax developments.